Father, we just pray now as we look at your word together, as we complete our series, Lord, um, that you would speak to us, Father, that this wouldn't be just seen as something in isolation, something for us nice people to think about, but Father God, we would really consider uh, what it means to be Christ-like. Father, those verses spoke very powerfully that Mark just read about the building of your church, and Lord, we know um, that what we're going to speak about is connected with that because you build your church, Father, through weakness of your people. Weakness, Lord, not in your sight. Weakness that's seen in the world's sight. Father God, Peter became the rock not because he was an amazingly tough man, but because he surrendered himself and followed Jesus Christ. Lord, he was a foundation, Lord, because of his godliness and his integrity and his faith in your son. He is both the cornerstone and the capstone, our saviour, Jesus. And we pray now as we look at these verses and finish this series that you would remind us of the power of your kingdom and the building of your church. And we just pray you'll be with us in Jesus' name. Amen. It's important to to be reminded, isn't it, that our church, um, not just this place, but across the entire world, is strong. Uh, The world loves to whisper to us that the church has had it, uh, that it's finished, uh, that you guys are are irrelevant, the world's moved on, come on, catch up, Uh, you're so old-fashioned in your views, etc., etc., etc. But the church isn't done, is it? The church isn't old-fashioned. It's God-fashioned. And uh, they're just going in the wrong direction. The world is falling apart around us and will always be falling apart around us. The church is built on rock, built on the foundation of Jesus Christ, his death and his resurrection. Not even the gates of hell can come against the church of Jesus Christ. Do you believe that? Do you believe that? Isn't that the best thing you could ever hear? Isn't it the best thing? They're not in a glorified scout movement in here. We're a part of the king's family, the king's army, the king's kingship. We are his servants, his subjects. We are the way he is changing the world. And we need to be a people of strength. And so we come to our last in our series of three on the king's secret service. And this series isn't about making us nicer Christians. This series is meant to be about making us more effective Christians for the building of God's kingdom. I'll tell you a story I heard a few years ago. Um, It's not got a funny ending last week, so I'm sorry in advance. Um, There was a performer, stage performer, who was well known for his um, dramatic monologues on stage. And this particular man was very well skilled in dramatic delivery and connecting with the audience. He loved to do monologues and uh, really sort of talk at length at people and they always enjoyed what he had to say. And just sometimes he liked to end with something a bit religious And he liked to end a particular monologue by reading or reciting Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd. He gave it uh, with such gusto and such passion. You know, he makes me lie beside still waters, etc., etc., etc. And he delivered it with real punch and vigor. And the audience always enjoyed when he got to Psalm 23 at the end of his monologue. And then one day, perhaps in a fit of slight arrogance, he decided to pick somebody from the audience to come and have a go, to see if they could do it better than him. And he chose this guy who looked a bit nervous at the front. He happened to be a Christian. He didn't realize that. This guy came up to the front and he said, read that out. And he began to read his way through Psalm 23. He was awful. He stuttered his way through it. He stammered his way through it. He kind of spit as he spoke, as some people do. And he was awful. As the actor watched him deliver this Psalm 23 monologue, he suddenly realized with a little bit of a raised eyebrows that he wasn't as good a public speaker as me. He wasn't as good at drama as I am. 
And he began to feel a bit good about himself. But when this man got to the end of Psalm 23, the crowd went crazy. They gave him a rousing standing ovation, and the actor couldn't believe it. Troubled by the strange response to this awful delivery, he asked his manager why he thought this man got such a good response. The manager replied, you might read it well, but he believes it. Our world is a really funny place, isn't it? Because we love the actors, don't we? We love the ones that can put in a good performance. We love the proud. And we love the self-sufficient. But do you know who God loves? The humble. God loves the humble and the unassuming more than the proud and the arrogant. Proverbs 15 verse 25 says this. The Lord tears down the house of the proud but sets the widow's boundary stones in place. He tears down the house of the proud, but he sets the widow's boundary stones in place. And then Proverbs 19, uh, 16, verse 19, says, Better to be lowly in spirit along with the oppressed than to share plunder with the proud. Better to be lowly in spirit along with the oppressed than to share plunder with the proud. It's better to be poor and humble than rich and proud. Hosea chapter 13, verse 6, says this. God says, When I fed them, that's his people, when I fed them, they were satisfied. And when they were satisfied, they became proud. Then they forgot me. See any correlation between the Western world in that verse? God has fed us, and we have become full, and we are satisfied, and we are rich, and we forget God. And we have forgotten him and we have become proud in the West in our own eyes. We love to be well known and patted on the back. We all think we're a little bit special and a little bit spectacular. But God loves the humble and not the proud. So today we finish our series titled On the King's Secret Service. And despite what I've just said about pride, I'm really quite proud with my uh, title for this series. But that's a different issue. I can apologise for that later and ask forgiveness. But we're on the King's Secret Service. We've talked about the need for prayer. We've talked about giving to the needy from Matthew chapter 6. If you've got it, we're going to read that together in a moment. There are only a couple of verses. Uh, That's why just I'm going to read it. But in this series, Jesus is talking about what it means to serve God, not publicly, not on show for a pat on the back, but what it means to serve God with integrity, what it means to be on the king's secret service, not on his public service, what we do when no one's watching. That's the kind of servant Jesus wants. And everything we've said over the last two weeks and this week has all come under the banner of verse 1 of chapter 6 of Matthew, when Jesus says, be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. If you do, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. Of all the things that I've read in the Bible recently, I think that's quite terrifying to read. Because how often do we do Christian things because we think, you know, people are watching. But Jesus says, God will give you nothing. God will not reward any of that. If you do your righteousness to be noticed by other people, you will not be rewarded by God. God expects high standards from his people. 
He's gracious in it, but he has a high standard that we are to meet. Jesus, in these verses, of course, is challenging a warped religious culture of his day. But also, I believe he's still, because he's a living God, he's not a dead saviour. He still lives. He's at the right hand of the Father. So these words we read in Matthew 6, it's as if he's still speaking them. In fact, he is still speaking them at us to us he spoke them and he still speaks them to us so he says to us this morning be careful that you don't practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them if you do you will have no reward from your father in heaven his message is blunt that religious vanity gets nothing from god yet humility self-sacrificing christianity move the heart of god and move the hands of god as well And it's a real challenge, and I hope you found it difficult these last three weeks. I'll let you into a secret. So have I. Because everything in all of us wants other people to say, aren't you brilliant? But Jesus has been saying to us for three weeks, stop that and start being more humble. Start being less worried by who notices what you do for my Father, in my name, in the power of the Holy Spirit. And it's a real challenge. It's difficult to be humble. It's difficult to just serve God without worrying about or not wanting other people to notice. Because our sinful nature, yes, it's a shock, we're not perfect. We have a sin problem that only Christ can fix. All of you and me as well. Our sinful nature craves approval. We crave the praise of men and women that are around us. It's hard to be humble because humility is often accompanied with feelings of being unappreciated. When you don't self-publicize all the good things you do or do them in such a way that other people notice, guess what? Sometimes they don't notice. And then you have the devil whisper to you, no one noticed. No one said anything to you. And then you feel unappreciated. And when you feel unappreciated, that can then lead to discouragement. Not just, no one noticed that I did that, but what's the point of me doing it? You see, if you serve only God, you always know why it matters that you do something, because God's asked you to do it. So even if no one notices, who cares? Because God has asked me to do it. So unappreciation can lead to discouragement, and if we're not careful, our discouragement can lead to the sin of self-pity. Yes, the sin of self-pity. It's one thing to feel unappreciated and feel discouraged, but we take that last step to self-pity. Me and my friend often talk, and he'll often say to me, I'm feeling really fed up. I'm having a party. The first time he said it to me, he said, I'm throwing myself a party at the moment. I was thinking, what? I said, what do you mean? He said, I'm throwing myself a pity party. Which meant that he basically spent the morning going over all the things that discouraged him, all the ways he felt unappreciated. And he said, I've got balloons, streamers and everything. It's really a rubbish party because I'm on my own, feeling miserable. Be careful that you don't allow the devil to whisper how unappreciated you are, to make you feel discouraged. Be careful you don't then take that final step and be self-piteous. So we hear Jesus' message about not seeking applause and we must as a church then, take on a second challenge. If we want every single one of us to be humble and unassuming and serve God in secret, if you like, uh, we need as a church community to be better at obeying the biblical command to be encouraging of one another. Uh, I remember being at a talk at Spring Harvest years ago, and he was, a, he was a church minister. There is no correlation with what I'm about to say, by the way, between my feelings and his. But he said that in his church, he was told by a woman... 
or men, it's irrelevant. Um, I'm not going to say anything nice and encourage you in case you get a big head. And he laughed and he said, I couldn't possibly get a big head in my church because <laughs> they were very good at bringing him back down to earth, I think. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 11 says, Therefore, encourage one another and build each other up, just as in fact you are doing. If we're all going to collectively try and be more humble, then we all have to collectively be better at encouraging each other. Not just the things that we see each other doing, but the things we don't see each other doing. The British aren't always very good at that. I'm sorry to tell you. Some of you who aren't British are thinking, phew. Um, but sometimes we're not very good, are we, uh, actually saying to each other, you're brilliant, you're really amazing, well done. You can say that to somebody else. You can say well done to someone. That's not wrong. That's not the message of these three sermons. It's when you do something to get a well done. That's when it's wrong. The Duke of Wellington um, was not an easy man to serve under, apparently. I don't know. Um, he was brilliant, of course, he was, but he was also demanding. And he was not one to shower his subordinates with compliments. Yet even Wellington realized that his methods left something to be desired. At an old age, he was asked by a young nurse that was caring for him if he'd do anything different if he lived his life over again. And he thought for a moment, and he said simply, I'd give more praise. I'd give not more praise. Do we encourage each other as much as we should, or do we labor under this slight force economy that we don't want to make each other arrogant? I guarantee you that the British aren't very good at making anybody arrogant. We're very good at discouraging each other. So let's be better at encouraging each other. So we get this command to be humble in these uh, three talks, these three, uh, this passage in Matthew chapter 6, and to work only for the approval of God. And whilst it can be very difficult, it can be very liberating, because when you no longer work for the approval of people, actually it becomes very freeing. When you no longer care what people think of you, then suddenly serving God becomes a pleasure. It becomes liberating. It becomes powerful. It becomes easy to do the right thing, not the popular thing. It becomes easy to be righteous and obedient to God and not do the easy thing. It's easy to serve God with joy and great contentment when you don't care what other people are thinking. And if you can be released from the tyranny of approval of your fellow human beings and only be released to work for the approval of your heavenly father, you will have gained what uh, 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 6 describes. Godliness with contentment is great gain. If you can be godly for the eyes of God only, then you will be content in your Christianity. But if your Christianity or mine is for the eyes of each other, then you will be, never be content in your faith. So let's come to Matthew chapter 6, um, verses... 16 to 18. I'll just read these to you. It's only a couple of verses, quite short. Um, Jesus says this, When you fast, do not look somber as the hypocrites do, for they disfigure their faces to show others they are fasting. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you fast, put oil on your head, wash your face, so that it will, be, it will not be obvious to others that you are fasting, but only to your Father, who is unseen, and your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. We've had three illustrations now of spiritual vanity in this passage, in this section of Matthew 6. But here it's worse. In verse 16, Jesus says they disfigure their faces. By disfigure, I think he means pull a face, 
kind of like that, you know. Mm. That sort of, you know, that hungry face that you pull. If you've ever passed a KFC when you're really hungry at about half past six, you'll know that this figured face that I'm talking about, when you sort of go, half your face goes towards KFC and the other half is going in the car. Um, but that kind of, they're, they're twisting their face up to look like they've not eaten, to look ill, to look hungry. They're working hard to look like they're starving. They're engaging in spiritual attention-seeking. Can there be anything worse in Christianity than spiritual attention-seeking? Why are they doing it? Why are they doing it? Simply, I reckon, so that when they go to the marketplace or the streets, somebody will go, oh, you're right. You don't look very well. Then they can do this. I'm all right. You know, I'm just fasting. I don't want to tell anybody and make a fuss. And then they say this, good on you. You're a better man than I am, or a better woman than I am. Then they go, please, it's just for the Lord. Is it? Really? Are you sure? But our Christ-shaped calling is far harder than this cheap imitation approval that the religious elite were enjoying in Jesus' day. It is far harder, far more magnificent what we're called to be. We're not called to proactively look like we're being holy. We're called to be proactive in hiding our righteous actions because they're between us and God, his kingdom, not ours. We're not seeking man's approval but God's, but these people look like they're fasting. We're we're called to not look like we're fasting as much as we can. Jesus' message is simply that the Christianity that God reacts to is humble and authentic actions focused and done only, only as worship to him and him alone. Is that you and is that me? Only you can answer that and only I can answer that. Hudson Taylor, the famous missionary to China, a well-known missionary to China, was scheduled to speak, obviously a long time ago, uh, a large church gathering. Um, and he was introduced in very eloquent, glowing terms. The person that introduced him uh, went on and on about how wonderful Mr. Hudson was, listing all the things that he'd accomplished in China before presenting him as our illustrious guest. Hudson Taylor stood quietly at the front, not quite sure what to say. And then he opened his message with this. Dear friends, I am the little servant of an illustrious master. That's amazing. So let's come on to fasting because I think you get the message of the last three weeks. Jesus has made it clear. But we need to talk about fasting because fasting is something that has been lost almost in amongst many Christians, amongst many churches. In most Christian circles, fasting is the Christian discipline that has been forgotten. It's a biblical command that often gets kind of pushed to the side and we don't fast. We like to pray, we like to worship, um, we occasionally don't mind doing other things, but fasting we don't really do. Maybe one or two of us fast, but perhaps we don't fast um, as a community very much. Yet in verses 16 and 17, just like prayer, just like giving to the needy, Jesus says, when you fast, not if, not when you get a chance, but when you fast, do it this way. So what is fasting? Well, it's obvious, I guess. Fasting is going without something for a period of time, typically food. Not for health, I'm afraid to tell you. Not for weight or to lower your blood sugar levels. Not because you're doing that five days eating, two days fasting diet. 
which I tried for five days and didn't work. Come on, that, was a, that was a clever joke, because I didn't do the two days fasting. Never mind. Um, but actually, it's about going without something as part of our prayer life, as part of our petitions to God over something, as part of our repentance. Some people fast because they've been so far from God that they're so sorry that they just want to show him by fasting and praying. Part of our worship as well. Jesus fasted in Matthew 4, verse 2. He went without food whilst in the desert. And across the entire Bible from beginning to end, you have people that have fasted, that have gone without food for a time as part of their devotions and their love of God. When do people fast? Um, I'm not going to read these verses out, but they hopefully will appear behind me. Um, In Joel 1 and 2, he fasted as a part of repentance, part of being sorry. Ezekiel 10, we can fast on behalf of other people for their salvation or for their forgiveness, seeking God's favor on their life. In Acts chapter 10, um, fasting is a part of regular worship and devotions to God. We pray every morning, but we can actually incorporate fasting into our worship and our devotions to God. Acts chapter 13, when they were seeking God's guidance, they didn't just pray, they fasted as well. In fact, often the Bible puts the phrase prayer and fasting together, whereas we've kind of divided the two and put fasting over there for Lent. Why wait until Lent to fast when it's a biblical norm, a biblical command? Why would you fast? What is the point of fasting? Well, on its own, there is no point to fasting. Going without food doesn't do anything, does it? But when you couple it with a a godliness and with prayer and with a Christ-like heart, it can be very powerful. We fast, and when you fast, you increase our sense of humility and our dependence on God. When you go without something, you're suddenly aware that you need it. When you're without something, you're suddenly aware of your weakness and your frailty. Therefore, you know you need to depend on God for everything. When we fast, it allows us more time to pray because you're not wasting time at a dinner table for hours on end. You can actually pray when you should be eating. It reminds us of the importance of sacrifice. I wonder how often the church in the West has forgotten that it's called to be in the mud and in the gutter and actually a people of poverty so often. It's a good exercise in self-discipline. The 21st century church has forgotten what it is to have a disciplined Christian life. You know, every morning I pray for an hour. Every time I do that, I give 10% of my money regardless of pay rises or whatever. Whatever take you take on that. We've lost those sense of those disciplines that actually have accompanied Christianity right from day one. Maybe we need to go back to some of those. Fasting helps us focus on God. Because every single time your stomach rumbles... You know what you're doing, and you turn that into prayer. And I reckon as well that when you fast and pray, it has far more effect because you're saying to God, this is how serious I feel about this issue. Because believe it or not, God wants more of us 
then sometimes we'd give him. When I was in Bangladesh, um, I'm not going to tell any more Bangladesh stories after this because it's been a thousand years. Um, I've probably told you this one already anyway. I'm becoming like Uncle Albert in Only Fools and Horses who just tells the same three war stories. Anyway, um, and so I remember I was uh, going off to be a football coach at a team at the American school and, uh, and I was terrified of going. They're all 15 to 18-year-old boys. I was 21 at the time, maybe 22, I can't remember. And so I was quite young, only a few years older and I thought, oh man, I'm going to get bullied, <laughs> beaten up put head down the toilet, all sorts of things. I had this vision in my mind of American schools and just having my head kicked in in the first five minutes for being English or something. Anyway, I remember sitting in my flat in Dhaka in Bangladesh and I had about ten minutes to go for I had to leave and I sat down and I prayed. I prayed for about ten seconds. I said, Lord, let it go well. Amen. And I stood up and I swear to you, it's almost as if God said, is that it? Seriously, is that it? And I thought... Yeah, that prayer's not going to get answered, is it? So I sat down, and I took a bit longer, and I just said, Lord, I'm sorry for the first one, but Father God, please let it go well. I'm terrified. I don't know what to do. I'm really worried. Let it go well, please. And I had some of the best experiences doing the football coaching in that school, and I convinced, had I not prayed that second prayer, it would have got off to a far difficult start. Fasting, I think, for me, just adds that weight to our prayer life. Fasting doesn't make something happen. Fasting makes you pray differently, perhaps, and just says to God, this is how serious I am about this issue. Please move. Obviously, I just said on its own, fasting doesn't do anything. Going without something, doesn't, uh, God isn't contractually obliged to do something just because you skip dinner. Um, however, uh, in Zechariah chapter 7, Verse 5, sometimes the Israelites made that mistake. It says, um, Ask all the people of the land and the priests, when you fasted and mourned in the fifth and seven months months, for the past 70 years, was it really for me that you fasted? So in Zechariah, I've had 70 years in exile. So twice a year they fasted. And God says at the end of 70 years, was it any of it for me? Which suggests that none of it was for God. It was just ritualistic pointlessness did you actually mean it so fasting when you don't really mean it won't do anything in fact you'll be wasting your time Isaiah 58 verses 3 onwards God says again uh, quoting his own people why have we fasted they say and you have not seen it why have we humbled ourselves and you have not noticed yet on the day of your fasting you do as you please and exploit all your workers. Your fasting ends in quarreling and strife and in striking each other with wicked fists. You cannot fast as you do today and expect your voice to be heard on high because they fasted with the wrong heart. And then God says those famous verses I um, read last week. Is this not the kind of fast I've chosen? Only for a day for people to humble themselves? Is it only for bowing one's head like a reed or for lying in sackcloth and ashes? Is that what you call a fast, a day acceptable to the Lord? Is not this the kind of fasting I've chosen, to loose the chains of injustice and untie the cords of the yoke, to set the oppressed free and to break every yoke? So why should you fast? Sorry, what should you fast even? Some would say only food, but I think you can probably fast anything. Um, In fact, I suspect that if you fasted something that you really like doing, 
that that probably has quite a lot more effect anyway on you, if nothing else. Maybe we should fast this thing. I know I go on about mobile phones. I'm really sorry. There's like three things I nag about. But wouldn't it be good, or maybe, God's trying to talk to us sometimes and we're too busy doing that. In fact, almost certainly. And maybe if I said to God, you know what, Lord, I'm going to fast checking my Facebook account. But not just because it's Lent and that's what everyone does. But I'm going to fast it in the middle of January for three days or for five days or for a month. I'm going to give out coffee. I'm going to stop watching EastEnders for six months. In fact, if you watch EastEnders, do that anyway. Um, (laughs) God will bless you. I'm sure God will bless you and provide healing for that. Um, But food is typically what happens. And actually, there is something about going without food and sustenance that's quite powerful. But I don't think you need to limit it just to that. Have you ever fasted? Um, 24 hours without food is doable unless you've got a medical condition. I encourage you to try it. I encourage you to say to God from 7 till 7 next night, Lord, I'm going to not eat. I'm going to go without something. I'm going to pray to you every half an hour for five minutes or something. Or every time my stomach rumbles, this is what I do. If I have a fast food, every time my stomach rumbles, I pray. Um, Not just to distract myself, but just to pray because I'm reminding myself I'm hungry. I'm hungry for a reason. I'm hungry because this thing is bothering me and I want to pray about it to God. So I pray more in those 24 hours than I would if I'd not fasted. Jesus didn't say if you fast, but when. So I challenge us to add back into our Christianity another spiritual discipline that we have let slide. And go without so that God will move more. And so we finish our series. What now? I don't know. We could just come back next week and change the subject. But I believe God is calling us to renounce the way of the world. I believe God is calling us to go without the applause of our peers and our friends and our work colleagues. I believe God is calling us to renounce all those things that distract us from his approval and from serving him 100%. I wonder if there are any here this morning that are desperate to renounce a former life that has been all about our pride, desperate to be humble. I wonder if any of us here this morning want to be secret Christians in the sense that we've just talked about, rather than Christians who want to be great in each other's eyes. Is that you this morning? You done with doing things just so we can all look at each other and get approval. God wants to use the humble. God wants to use the weak. God wants to use the frail. God wants to use the pathetic. God wants to use the idiotic. God wants to use the stupid in the world's eyes. Not so that we can feel good, so that he can grow his kingdom. Because God grows his kingdom with authenticity and integrity. He doesn't build it in your strength or my strength or my holiness or my giftings and all the things that I think I might have. He builds it on my humility But not one of us is humble this morning. Not one of us lacks pride. Not one of us is as godly as we think we are. Not one of us is where God is calling us to be. But do you want to go that way? Do you want to be the sort of Christian that God can use? Do you want to be the sort of Christian that God wants to use? Or do you want to be the sort of Christian that is only caring about what each other thinks? If you want to renounce that, I encourage you to stand. If you want to renounce desperation for approval of each other just stand up where you are
just shut our eyes. God wants to use those who want to be used. And so often God uses those who think they're not good enough to be used as well. So I'm going to pray for each of us now. And just say amen in your heart, if you agree. Father God, we stand here, Lord, and we want to say sorry. We want to ask your forgiveness for all those times when we've listened to the words of your Bible, we've listened to the words of your Son, your very words from your own mouth, inspired words by your Holy Spirit about things you want us to do, the way you call us for holiness. Father, forgive us when we've done some of those things, when we've had one eye on the approval of men and women. Father God, you call us to be God-focused 100%. Father, we ask your forgiveness for that. Father, we stand here not because we think we're anything great, but because we acknowledge our sin and our frailty. We acknowledge the way we've gone wrong. And we ask, Lord, that you would give us a heart that doesn't care what other people think. Give us a heart, Lord, that has no pride in it, that just wants to see Jesus lifted high. We pray less of us, Lord. May he increase. Father God, forgive us for all those times that we've not encouraged other people. Father God, forgive us for all the times we've been jealous of other people and how well they're doing. Forgive us for all those times we've noticed other people do things for you and we've walked on by. Forgive us, Lord, for all the times we've not noticed the things people do for you. Father God, may we be Jesus Christ wherever we go. Lord, may we be prepared to give it all up for the kingdom of God. May we be like a rock that you can build something on. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.